the first non-founder fellow. Is that correct, Ron? Where's Ron? He's not here. So I'm just gonna say I can say anything I want then. He's the first. <laughs> he is the first. I believe to be the first non-founder fellow, along with his partner. Um, Paul O'Byrne, and uh, we, 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 who you've heard much about, some of you don't know, Paul uh, passed away seven years ago, is it? Uh, nine years ago, nine years next ago. Thursday. Yep, and uh, both of these guys, they, they are collectively and affectionately known inside uh, Verisage as the Pauls. Uh, so without further ado, Mr. Paul Kennedy. Thank you. So as I introduced myself earlier, I'm a, an accountant from, from England. Uh, I'm not a consultant, I'm not an author, so the best I can do on these sort of occasions really is to try and share with you some of the experiences I've had uh, of the various age principles and philosophies. The only trouble is I've been doing it now for so long that what I do has become normal, so I struggle to remember what the bad old days were like. Um, but these, the bad old days came rushing back to me recently when I had a series of merger talks with a local firm. And I suppose I should say, um, by way of explanation, this is a very reputable firm I was speaking to. They're a much bigger firm than mine. Very reputable firm, the sort of firm that my institute would be most proud of. But we sat down and we had a series of discussions and it sort of gradually dawned on me just how far my thinking had moved away from the or dominant view in, within the accounting profession, indeed how far my thinking had come from my own thinking some 17 years ago. And in these discussions, there were um, two things. They had two problems with my firm. I had a lot of problems with their firm, but we're not going to go into that today. They had two problems with my firm. And the first problem was that they were most concerned about how much time my team and I spent doing what they thought of as speculative things. I think the term they used was non-chargeable time, which was a phrase that I hadn't heard for many years. But we, in our office, we spent quite a lot of time speculating on things. Um, we, we call it investing in intellectual capital, which is a phrase that they really didn't recognize. So we spent time trying to understand our customers' needs, we try to develop new ideas and new products. And this is just normal for us. But this all came out during the conversations with this firm. And they said, that would never work in our firm. We expect people to recover their time. Now, it had dawned on me at that moment that they, their paradigm, their view, was that time was a cost. And our paradigm, our view, was that time was now an investment we were having to invest our time in our intellectual capital. And sometimes fairly speculatively. And they said things like, well, you know, this particular project you've been describing, are you going to, uh, when are you going to be able to bill it? I said, bill it? We haven't even done the proposal yet. We're miles off billing it, and in fact, we may get to a point where we never bill it. And they said, well, that would never work in our firm. You know, you've got to try to recover your time. And I thought about it, I said, well, actually, unless we can really be confident that we're going to create value for this client, we probably won't bill it. Because the worst thing we can do is to send a client a bill for which they have no value. Now, they sort of looked at me fairly blankly at this point. <laughs> um, but then we went on to their second problem. And in, in my head, they're related. So their second problem was the fact that 
they looked at my fees. So we shared, I shared with them my um, client fees and uh, the services we provided to these clients, top 20 or whatever it was. And they were most concerned about the level of these fees for the services that I described against these fees. And they described, when I say they were concerned, they were concerned they were too high. Because they were concerned that, and I think the phrase they used was that these clients are vulnerable. I said, vulnerable, what do you mean? And they said, well, we think they're vulnerable to a firm like ours who could come in and do the work at half the price. Now, I thought, well, actually, there, there you go. Not only do they not see that there's a need to make an investment in, share, in sorry, an intellectual capital, but they also don't see that where the return comes from. So we had spent a lot of time really getting underneath the skin of these clients, really finding out what made them tick. Uh, and trying, in our firm, our view is that we always want to try and be that, uh, what Meister talks about as the trusted advisor. Always want to get to that point where we're irreplaceable, where the fees are really not an issue. And sometimes that takes a lot of investment. So on the one hand, they didn't understand the investment. On the other hand, they thought these clients were vulnerable. Um, and then the conversations moved on. But something stuck in my mind, and I thought, well, actually, that's something I've got to go back to. So further on in the same conversation, I said, let's just go back to this vulnerability issue. I said, if my clients could get better value by going to a firm like yours who could do the work for half the price. And of course, they were confusing the work with the value. They thought that these people were buying products, but of course they weren't. They were meeting needs. I said, but if they could do that, not only would I not stand in their way, but I would facilitate it. I would help them move on. And, I was, and of course, at this point, it absolutely killed the deal because up until that point, they thought I was mad. Now they absolutely knew <laughs> I was completely off my head. But there's two reasons why we would say that. One is, if we are not creating value for these people at these prices, we shouldn't be doing it. We should be freeing up our resources to go and find people who do value what we do. It's a very important part of our philosophy. And the second thing is we don't want to work for people who just use us because we did it last year. You know, we want people who are going to buy into to what we do and they want, we want them to come to us for a good reason. And also, of course, it's that philosophy of allowing clients to move on that keeps you hungry. It keeps you constantly innovating what you do. And we are as good as our last... Um, job in our office. You know, uh, Ron talked yesterday about us firing our clients every year. Well, we don't fire our clients every year, but we give them an opportunity to leave every year. Because that's what keeps us going. We know we're always on our last deal with our clients. So I found that to be a, an interesting discussion. What it also taught me was that there's a diagram that I've been using to try and communicate the benefits of value pricing for many years, uh, and I now realise it's wrong, which is this one here. So just to explain how I would usually use this diagram, can you, is, is it actually, can you see it at the back there? Just about to see it, yeah. So this is what I normally do to try and talk about value pricing, and I say that fact, the fact is value is highly subjective. We're all over the value curve on a regular basis. And the objective of value pricing is to always leave some value on the table. So we want to mirror our pricing. What a, it's not the right phrase, mirror. We want to make our price relative to the value, um, and that also means when it's low value, it's a low price, if you choose to do that sort of work. 
But it's this whole idea that we constantly leave value on the table. The problem with time cost billing, of course, is that it's, um, time is value agnostic at best. You know, there is no real relationship there between time and value. Um, so what it does, it tends to stop the profession getting the benefits of these higher prices for the higher value. But it also means that they overcharge in many cases for work they probably shouldn't be doing. And it's both of those things that I think are, are, are both evils of the time cost billing system. So what I realized was that, in fact, if you do this, if you manage to constantly leave value on the table, if you get to a point where your customers trust you to deliver value, to the point that they know that, that you won't charge them if they don't get value, if you build that level of trust, what actually happens is this gradually works its way and I guess we, we probably could have learned the same thing from Frederick Reichel's um, The Loyalty Effect, where he talks about the whole idea of building trust with clients is over time, you gradually create and capture more value. And I realise that diagram should be sliding upwards. One other quick conversation, I know this is, that's my countdown, is it? Okay, sorry. Um, so one other quick conversation around the, the same topic, really, and this whole idea of, of not charging people uh, when there is no value, and the idea is that over time you build up value or trust in the value, came home to me when I got a phone call from a lawyer. Um, this is a little while ago now, but the lawyer phoned up me and says, oh, Paul, I've got a value pricing opportunity. I said, well, go on. He says, well, I've got a client who has a family problem, nothing to do with his business, but he's a loyal client but he's got a family problem, and I'm going to have to spend quite a lot of time just sorting out this, this, this family issue. It's personal, it's not business. How much should I be charging? And uh, I asked a few questions, but truthfully, I didn't know the answer. I didn't have enough information to help him with that particular problem. But it reminded me of a situation that happened to me some years ago, where a similar client, or sorry, a similar situation where a client phoned me and asked me for help with his son, who was in a bit of trouble. And I spent a weekend trying to sort this problem out. And it got to the end of the weekend and the client said, thank you so much for doing what you did. You must send me a bill. And I thought, how much can you bill somebody for that type of thing? And the conclusion I came to, perhaps rather surprisingly, was nothing. Because the goodwill was far greater than whatever bill I could have sent him. So if I did send him a bill for £5,000, I could not have spent that £5,000 better on marketing. And sometimes this is, goes against the grain when we talk about value pricing. It's about trying to capture the high value. I think sometimes you get to this situation where you've got to recognise that things are so valuable that in fact what you, you're better off doing is getting the long-term benefits of investing in that relationship. Um, so... Yeah, so I guess I'm probably only repeating what Ron said many years ago about the old um, practice equation and the new practice equation, really, is that we, in my firm, we've bought into the, this idea of investing in intellectual capital in a big way. You know, we constantly do it, and we, we, as far as we're concerned, it's about the long-term yield that we're interested in, not the short-term recovery. And uh, that, those differences really came home to me in talking to this, uh, this other firm. Thank <laughs> you.